I want you to turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, in a sermon that I've titled, The Portrait of Women in the Church. The Portrait of Women in the Church. Titus chapter 2. You know, when you go back to the earliest depictions, the portraits of Christian women in the church, you're going to find mosaics in the church of Rome all the way back to the 5th century. And as you look at these portraits of women, you're going to see that they depict not just women, but the whole family, the family of Jesus Christ in the incarnation of Christ. And the detail of these mosaics is amazing. It shows the adoration of the Magi. It shows Jesus, who is shown not in a manger, but on a throne the entire time. It also shows the star of Bethlehem across the entire scene. And then when it comes to the Virgin Mary, she doesn't have Joseph beside her in these depictions. It's just her by herself, this sweet, natural beauty as surely she was. But that kind of portrait doesn't really help us as we try to understand what it is that a Christian woman is to look like. What would be a portrait that would help us? And so we go instead to chapter 2 of Titus and listen to these words as we contemplate them this morning. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. This is what, again, I would call a portrait of women, specifically younger women in the section that we're going to look at this morning. Just by way of introduction, and before we really dive in deep, I want to begin our time by setting before you a very significant word in the text that we just read, a text, a word, I should say, that really sets the stage for us by what it is that it's going to show us and the importance of what we're going to learn today. And the word is really a very unassuming word when you look at it in the English, but in the original, it has this force and fury that becomes very, very clear and quickly convicting to us. Now, what is this word, you might ask? The word is found in verse 4, and it is the word translated encourage, encourage. The word in the Greek is a word that in its meaning, sophronizo, has not always translated in a helpful way. It's been translated to encourage, as it is in the New American Standard. It's also been translated to advise, uh, to urge. Some versions even say to train. But all of those translations kind of miss, in a sense, what I believe is the heart and soul of this word. If you were to go to the most dependable lexicon, that's a Greek dictionary, uh, you would find that this verb, only here in the New Testament, just so you know, used often, however, in the first century translation and literature, has the idea of bringing one to their senses, bringing one to their senses. So not just encourage, but waking one up leading a person back to the correct path, giving them a jolt back to the life of a wiser path, to wake up those who have stayed awake or stayed away with the hope of bringing them to the point of returning to the point of their life where they were walking rightly. To recover one's senses is the idea. To wise them up, to curb their appetites and actions away from indulgence, 
away from those things that are against self-control back to self-control. So this, as you can see, carries a very different sense to us merely than just the word to encourage. It has a sense in that, of course, but there's more to that. Paul's meaning here, then, is very, very revealing to us as the church. This entire passage, actually, is about the need for younger women, and we're going to see how older women take this application, for younger women in the church to be awakened, to be brought back to themselves, to be shaken up and out of the preset condition that they find themselves in, perhaps the slumber. So this is a very, very strong word, and it's a very telling word, I think, to us as well. Why do I say that? Because something has happened in the church. Something has happened in the churches in Crete to the young women who worshiped there and had to be addressed with kind of a force by the Apostle Paul. And what had happened, you might ask, well, as you remember from just a few weeks ago when we studied uh, the book of 1 Peter, uh, Peter himself was dealing with the attributes of a woman and why they needed to be put in focus. What was it that a woman needed to be adorned by and how should she really approach her Christian life? But in this book, we have a different focus, and that is that in the beginning of Titus, Paul is addressing false teachers. Now, what does that have to do with the condition of these women? Well, let me let you know. In chapter 1, verse 11, these false teachers, which is going to build up to where we are here in chapter 3, were upsetting whole families. They were upsetting whole families, verse 11, that whatever these deceivers in the church were teaching to the men and women in the church, whatever the context of their message, it had to be silenced, according to Paul. That silence was very important because it's striking home to this issue that something in their teaching was creeping into the home of the church, in the home of the people in the church. It was upsetting them. It was shaking their foundations. What was it specifically? Well, I think it can be summed up in verse 16 of chapter 1, They were professing to know God, but by their deeds, they were denying him. They were professing to know God, but by their deeds, they were denying him. They were teaching these teachers doctrine that wasn't sound. It wasn't healthy. It wasn't helpful. And that's why Paul tells us and instructs Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, to speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. This is the larger context of the verses that we're about to look at. And interestingly, when Paul tells Titus to do that, Paul doesn't then just go directly into teaching about sound doctrine, though he could have done that. No, far from it. Instead, he starts to talk about sound living, sound living. From verses 2 all the way to verse 10, Paul instructs Titus to teach sound living, healthy living, holy living. It isn't, in fact, until verse 11 that we come to the great doctrine of salvation and redemption. So the question might be, why is that? Why? Because the issue in the churches of Crete was the issue of how they lived, first and foremost. That might be a shock to you uh, that you would focus first on living before actually the doctrine of the living. But the false teachers in the church were teaching doctrine that allowed for sinful living, and Paul wanted to make sure that that was quieted, first and foremost. That that allowed for a lifestyle that allowed for them to deny the God they profess by the way they live their lives. And so back to chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says that the younger women in the church must be given a wake-up call. They have to be wakened up in their souls, jolted back into a life 
that honors God, that honors his word. They must learn their doctrine, of course, and their duties are linked together permanently in everything that they do so that they can never confuse themselves to believe that wrong living is a product of right teaching. That's never the case. Sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, is always connected to healthy living. Godly living, holiness, always. Now, you might say again, if you're tracking with me, what is the wrong way that these women have entertained? What is their lifestyle that's so imperative for Paul to address? What is this unhealthy path that they must be shaken out of? Well, look at the instruction itself. They are to be brought back to their senses, he says, regarding the way they had abandoned their homes. And this is very important, the way that they had abandoned their homes. Abandoned homes in what way? Well, look again at verse 4. You'll see there, jolt them back to their senses regarding their need to love their husbands and love their children. To love their husbands and to love their children. Wake them up concerning their need to be pure, to be workers at home, to be subject to their husbands. All of these pictures are pictures taken in the home. So something was seriously, seriously wrong in Crete and in the churches in Crete, and something had gone awry. Somehow, some way, we don't know specifically, these younger women in first century Crete had allowed their entire families, actually, to be distressed, to be shaken, and they were clearly a part of the problem of why that had happened. The false teachers had allowed the young women to believe that they, too, could profess God with their lips and deny him with their lives. This was very, very serious. So Paul begins to point for us the true portrait of a young woman in the church, a true portrait, women in general, but specifically young women in the church. Stroke by stroke, as if he's a master artist, he's given this godly portrait of what that looks like and how women in the church must portray themselves. And although these women in this particular passage are married, uh, the portrait is for all young women to measure themselves against this particular portrait as well. And so we're just going to allow Paul this morning with the men gone, most of us, at least the guys who are here are the faithful. No, I'm kidding. Uh, they're having a great time with Phil Johnson. I, I mean, I wish I was there. I really do. But I, I'm glad that I get to teach this so that we can focus really intently on the women. And I want to give you, if, if, it were, if I was a painter, four descriptions, if you will, of what you must resemble according to the word of God if you're going to honor God in your life. This is specifically for the women, men to hear. Next time, we're going to be talking about men who love and understand their women. But first, we're going to focus on what these godly portraits should be. And we're going to see those descriptions in just a moment. But first, let me just make a comment before I kind of break this down for you. And I think you know this, but it's always good to get the context of our own lives in focus. We live currently, as you know, in a day where worldly Christianity is promoted. Worldly Christianity is promoted. What does that mean? Can that even be a, a movement that would be true? It's a movement or a resurgence, if you will, where people are embracing worldliness in this time of chaos. Uh, they've understood the doctrines, they understand the duties, but they have excused for themselves the behavior. So, and maybe even in an effort to try to win the unbelieving, they become like unbelievers themselves, rushing into the world, flirting with the world. 
And I think nowhere can this be seen more clearly than the effect it has in young women in the church. That's where you're going to see it really materialize. And so in an attempt to be relevant, perhaps, to their neighbors and relatable to those outside, maybe even in their workplaces, young women in the church constantly are being seduced into compromise, into compromise, into corrupting influences. The feminist movement has done no help, of course, in that, tried for decades to teach women, young women specifically, that they're to embrace the idea of you know, climbing the corporate ladder, that they're to be giving their God-given beauty to attract and to sustain power in the workplace so men see them as equals, that the home and its children and its chores are deeply, deeply unnecessary and better kind of delegated to daycare workers. And so women in the church are taught by the world that they can dress and look like and compete with the women outside the church to win them to Christ, that that's really what we need is to be on the same pathway and platform. But that's 180 degrees away from what the great apostle Paul paints for us here in Titus 2. Paul says, no, 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 young women, break from all that, get away from all that, place all of your attention away from flirting with the culture, and fix yourself fully on the goal of living godly lives in the home, specifically in the home. You know, feminism wasn't really born until 1960s or sometime in that era. Feminism was born really, first and foremost, however, in the Garden of Eden. They didn't call it feminism, but that's where it started. From the very moment that Satan seduced Eve to bite into that forbidden fruit, the world has set its desire to allure women away from the God of their creation and to fix a different portrait for them to focus on and to look at and to resemble. It was no different for the island of Crete, by the way, in first century. The idea has always been the same. These women were born into a culture that was anything but Christian. If you have any study at all about the island of Crete during first century, it was a culture, as Paul says earlier in this letter, of lazy gluttons. He talks about Crete and this culture as being self-fulfillment focused, no self-control. They, they could not grasp the idea. The entire culture was very secular, very secular. It valued and exalted sin and vice and might say even would be the early strand of feminism. There's a historian, Bruce W. Winter. He did a study of what he called the appearance of the new woman, the, the new woman in Pauline communities. He says the new woman was the woman of the first century world that had been promoted and created by the elite Roman households that began to question the rightful place of women. So these were the elite women who started to think differently. And the Greek Hellenistic culture and the early imperial Roman culture had very, very different ideas about the role of the wife than this new emerging woman did. The, the basic culture was much in, in adversity to this. The new woman was seen in statues and coins that the women who adored themselves, as we heard in First Peter, and lifted up their hair and made sure that they were beautific and had their veils lifted up. This new woman was given license to seduce and be seduced by men who were not their husbands. They entered into politics and after parties and business transactions in a far different way than the women of the earlier days had done, the earlier days of the Republican period of the early Roman Empire. So this new woman that was emerging, in every culture you have the same resurgence, nothing is new under the sun. These new women were very controversial romanticized, idealized. 
and really constituted feminism in the first century, the feministic idea in the first century. This new woman, by the time we get to her and she reaches the island of Crete and her philosophy, it was seen everywhere. Her influence was, was really a pandemic. She began to show up not only in art, sculpture, and official coins, and as I had said, paintings, but they began to emerge in poetry and theater, and the day of being this new and improved kind of woman was, was everywhere. This was wildly accepted by the women in Crete. And already they had enjoyed far more legal privileges than others and freedoms than their Athenian Greek counterpoints did. Crete was already known as actually motherland rather than fatherland. They were starting to even change the terminology. And so the island gladly accepted what they saw was coming, this new kind of avant-garde movement of, of the culture, and they went head deep. And probably one of the greatest efforts or effects of this movement was this diminishing interest in the home. And you'll see it everywhere that this kind of movement comes. Diminishing interest in the home. To be a new woman, to be a new kind of woman meant entertaining the world and its lust and its agendas full force with little regard for their households. This was the culture of the Cretan Christian women as well. They were saved out of that culture. They were saved to loving kindness by the grace and mercy of Christ. And then they fell asleep again. Somehow, some way, though they were taken out of that culture, they began to flirt with that culture even more. And so that's why Paul says they must be awakened. Encourage is the word, but to be awakened. That's why they had to be jolted back to their senses. The false teachers had upset families. They had taught that what they believed didn't have to affect the way you live. And I can see this all the time. I see this even here in our church in certain circles where the ideology, the theology, the doctrine is so sound as not to be disputed, but the lifestyle is far, far from godly. And so these young women were being faced with two major influences, both false teaching on one side and an increasing pagan uh, culture on the other. So both are tempting them, false teaching in the church and also false application of that in the culture. Both of them are all like sirens from from the ancient Greeks calling to them, telling them that all is well if they abandon their homes. And therefore, that's exactly what they were tempted to do. So that's the situation that we see here. That's the context before us. So the question might be now, knowing that, what can they do? What can they do? They must be challenged and be awakened and moved and to understand what their role is before God and the church. So how is that going to happen? And the reason that this is so vital for us to understand is because the way they act within their own families, listen to this, the way you act before your own family and within your own home is your your evangelistic witness, I should say, for the gospel. More than a testimony for their children, more than a a testimony before their husbands, this sound and healthy life was to be a testimony to the unbelieving world around you so that the word of God might not be, as we read, dishonored. So the goal is evangelistic. The goal is to reach others for Christ, and the goal was the furtherance of the gospel. So with that in mind, let's look at this portrait together, noticing first that the young women in the church must be, if you're taking notes, number one, learners. Learners. 
young women in the church must be, the first paint stroke, if you will, is to be a learner. And again, in verse 4, so that they, the older women, might encourage or help them to open their eyes, to open their senses. Not only is this an instruction to the older women to convict the younger women through the teaching, but by implication, this is also a call for younger women to be learning from them this instruction. Older women, so very important in the church, who had also recently been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, needed to get into the kitchens of these younger women and to their lives and look at and sort out and encourage them and help them and not allow them to continue on the way in which they were going. And the younger women were supposed to allow them to get into their kitchens. This is not the role of a man, I might tell you, whether an elder or layman. This is a role of an older woman. You older women are to be inserting yourselves into the lives of younger women to help them. And this teaching role is not an official title of teaching, but it's good, verse 3 verse uh, C, it says, but this is a constant steady influence on them throughout the course of their daily life. They're not to be malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. They're to be good in their behavior so that why are they to have that kind of behavior? They may encourage or wake up the others. You know, I can speak these things from the pulpit, John Street, John MacArthur, all of us here, all pastors can speak these things from the pulpit and the pew, but it's the older women in the church that must apply these truths to younger women as only they can. The man of God is not going to into the homes of a younger woman to instruct them and to shake them out. He must remain above reproach. It's the idea of the older woman must be the agent of change for these younger women. And get this, the younger women must let them. The younger women must let them in. There is a famine, I believe, in the church for this kind of life-on-life instruction. And you probably have seen it. Older women many times act as if their um, duty is done once they've raised their own children and they kind of enter into their twilight years. But Paul says, no, you have ministry to do. And the younger women need you. And they cannot learn these things from their husband or from blog articles or a book. They desperately need to wake up and have a wake-up call and a jolt from a godly older woman. Involve yourselves in this work. Involve yourselves in the lives of others. You may say, oh, finally, I'm at rest. You know, the empty nest is here. I can uh, just go to sleep, take naps, do these projects I've always wanted to do. No, 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 no. No, you, while you do, you can do that. You probably have entitled, you deserve to have the uh, hobby every once in a while. But this entire new generation of women, I don't know if you've noticed, needs great help. They need help. And you need to teach them and correct them and show them what you know and how it looks. I have heard this so many times in my years here at Grace Church where people say, I have the Bible. I know what it's supposed to be like. I don't know what it's supposed to look like. And so what's the only remedy for that other than to put yourself in that situation? And so younger women, hear me, let them. Let them in. Let them in your kitchen. That's kind of a metaphorical slang for let them get into your lives. But I mean, let them get in your kitchen. Uh, Let them get inside your home and to look at your lives and to evaluate and say, what do you see? 
Don't hear their words and then refuse to learn from them. Take their teaching to heart. Bow to their instruction with humility. You're being invaded on every shore to be swept into the culture and to the ways of worldly women by the things that you read, the the blogs that you see, just every angle of life. Don't allow it. Don't succumb to it. Don't allow yourself to be focused and learn of the world. Learn from the church. Learn from these women who are learners themselves because learners need to learn and learners need to grow and learners need to change. So Paul's first perspective in this portrait is, young women, be learners from the older women. Learn from them. And older women, teach them. Secondly, notice with me, Paul tells Titus to make sure the younger women not only become learners, but also they become, number two, lovers. Not only are you to become learners, but number two, lovers. And we see that second part in verse four, encourage or wake up the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. They're to learn how they can become lovers of their family. Now, this seems like a very odd command. I think to most of us, when you read that, you think, love your family, love your husband and your your children. Young women would need to be shaken out of their present mindset that they don't love their families. The truth is most women, I would dare say, naturally love their children, naturally love their husbands. But the great apostle here is helping us to think a little bit deeper about this than we might assume. According to Paul, the younger women must be taught, must be taught to love them, to be reminded to love them, to be challenged to love them. Why would that be? Why would you have to be challenged to do that? Well, there were uh, a few reasons that might help us to understand these things. When the Apostle Paul first wrote to Titus, it was uh, 63 AD. That was the time period. And it was still a custom for most marriages to be arranged. Most marriages were arranged. A woman's father and mother chose who she would marry. And many times these arrangements were made even before people were born. And so people would enter into marriage with little or no affection for the other person or the spouse since marriage wasn't based on attraction at all. We see that, don't we, in the history of the world dominating marriage really all the way up to the 18th century worldwide. That was just the way it was. So it's very likely that some marriages within the church were loveless, were loveless. We see that even today even though the opposite is true, the same effect remains. And think about this if you ever haven't thought about it. A woman might be attracted to a man today to become physically and romantically involved, feeling their affections for this one person, and then they license themselves to sin against God. And they know the intimacy is reserved for marriage alone, but they transgress God's law only to find that after a brief moment of time that those feelings didn't remain once they married. Uh, The taboo attraction eventually wears off, and once marriage is legitimized, the relationship and they fall out of love, quote-unquote, as they said, remaining in a loveless marriage for the rest of their lives. So either way, either way, Paul says here, younger women must learn, learn to love their husbands. Regardless, how does that affect the love that they have for their children? Okay, I can get the fact that they maybe aren't in love with their husbands, but not to love their children? Well, think about this. Children that come out of a loveless marriage become constant reminders of their loveless marriage. 
instead of to them being the reward of Scripture that they have called children, and they are a reward to the, to the woman and to the man, they become a curse. They remind them of the cursedness of their marriage. They become a burden, and they become an impediment, keeping them from romance and prominence and freedom that they might dream that they have one day. Just in passing, I know a woman who was a nanny to a very, very prominent star in the world, and she was a Christian, and her husband was a Christian, and one day, finally, she got pregnant, and she was no longer taking care of the children of this very, very famous woman, and so she was relegated from Europe to now to Los Angeles in a little apartment, and she was just going crazy. Everything that she'd enjoyed, the jet-setting lifestyle, being in palaces all over the world, now she was just her and her daughter, and she was miserable. She had tasted the good life, and now her life did not seem enough at all. This is the new woman. The new woman, first century Crete, certainly would have been challenged to love their families, but the new woman had been now emancipated in the goals and the minds of the culture, and so even now more of a temptation for these young folks. Women had been taught, as one early writer said, to take the realm and to stir the household's course and heighten the fame it had. So now it was their control. It was their time to break out. And this taking the helm led them into the public square and many times into the arms of other men. Historians tell us that this new Roman woman who were married used contraceptives to avoid pregnancy and if not successful would abort the child if it came from, uh, impeded them, I should say, from pursuing wealth and their new trendy way of lifestyle. Sad as that might seem, to contrast that, One tombstone from that time period had a 20-year-old woman's epitaph saying, I hope my daughter will live chastely and learn by my example to love her husband. I have gone the wrong way, and now my, my tombstone, what you want to know about me, I hope my daughter does not go the same way I did. Devotion to children, devotion to the husband of their home was so countercultural to the first century mindset that Paul said, you have to wake up. The woman of God loves. The woman of God prioritizes her family. She is charged to wake up, sound an alarm in her own heart as whether or not does she really love her family or is she seduced by the world. And Paul continues this portrait. He continues this portrait of saying, ladies, not only should you be learners in the home, not only you should be lovers of your husband and your children according to the word of God so that you might not bring ill reproach against the gospel, but number three, not only you to be learners and lovers, but listen to this, you're also to become ladies. Ladies. You might say, Tom, where are you getting that from the text? Well, look at verse five. Call them to be sensible and pure sensible and pure. They are to conduct themselves in a manner that resembles self-control and sexual purity. That's what it is to be a lady, to be self-controlled and to be sexually pure. Sensible here is a word used for actually overseers in chapter 1, verse 8. It's also used for older men in chapter 2, verse 12, or excuse me, verse 2 as well. So it's a word referring to soundness, just being sound, sound of mind. And it shows up in a self-disciplined lifestyle. Chapter 2, verse 12, it says, we see that this ability to live in such a sensible way 
is granted to the believer by the grace of God. He says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's a gift of God, being self-controlled, being sensible. It's an unmerited favor to us by God. It's a grace. But here in our chapter 2, verse excuse me, I've lost my place here, for uh, verse 7, he's talking to us about the idea of being pure, to be, verse 8, sound is the idea of being pure even behaviorally. It speaks of a woman who is chaste and modest to be an example of good deeds, purity in doctrine, dignified. That's for the men. I'm sorry, my eyes are going. I've got big print, but it's just not working. Uh, uh, it's, it's so horrible to grow older. Uh, very, verse 5, to be sensible, pure, <laughs> workers at home, kind. My birthday is next week. Don't, don't, uh, don't. Just pray for me. Just pray for me. Uh, it's, it's originally referring to a ceremonial cleansing, but it shifted over time to include this moral realm as well. So younger women, women need to not only love their husbands, love their wives, but to be sensible and pure, verse 5, to be sensible and pure. Younger women need to be instructed by the older women. That's why I say this is really a portrait of women in general in the church, specifically the younger women. Older women to instruct to be the younger women to be self-controlled, and to be modest and pure. Again, this new Roman woman who is this uh, kind of model that they're seeing in the culture was not pure, and she's not modest. Uh, First Timothy kind of makes a reference to that. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, when the great apostle says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. And we've seen this again already in 1 Peter. This worldliness was encroaching the church. Worldliness distracts. It distracts younger women away from God, away from adorning the gospel, away from the home. So this entire section back to Titus 2, on many, many levels, is is addressing this idea of intense seduction of the world. A younger woman sees elite women, uh, the women of renown in their dress, and they, they, they adorn themselves in such a way that it calls attention to themselves. And so, of course, that's something that catches the eye of a young woman, and they start to ponder whether or not it's legitimate or, or something that they should do. They recently enjoyed fashion when they were in the world before they came to Christ. They were very uh, recently walking in the way of the world and the, the part of the world and, and desiring people to see them, especially men, to flaunt the fact they had beauty and to have men see them and to be wanted by them, men who are not their husbands. But now they've repented from all that. That's no longer in their mind, and now they're called to purity and modesty. But look at this. Think of this. Their closets are still full. They're still full of alluring dresses, And they're still having hearts full of alluring desires, but they're supposed to be shocked out of it, Paul says, to to crush, not to crush their homes, not to neglect the love that they have for their husbands and for their children, just for the sake of a glance or a compliment. And so older ladies move into the younger lady's closet, don't allow their beauty to be cheapened, don't allow them to believe that doctrine is unrelated to dress, show them how to be ladies, teach them how to be pure and modest and attracting their husbands in their eyes with the gold of their heart. 
and plead with them not to cheapen themselves with a dormant that pollutes their true loveliness, which is godliness. Listen, at the heart, I think, of all feminist um, independence, if you will, is the core desire for sexual freedom. It seems to me that it's the demise of the family is this idea to be adorned, to be wanted. So when a young woman, it applies to young men as well, of course, is taught to use her physical form as a tool to kind of personally advance herself, when she reveals her outer beauty to anyone that wants to look to kind of make herself feel more important or to be wanted by other people, she's cheapening herself. And she cheapens herself in the golden crown that sits upon her head by grace, by thinking that it's things of this world that should attract. And she just lessens her love ultimately for her home. She diminishes her true standing as a testimony to Christ. And she's no longer an example to the world. The new woman desires a place in the world, public attention in the public square. She had emerged out of her home into the marketplace, out of the marriage, into the furnace. And so she sells her goods for her own renown, and this Christian woman must not be this way. And again, it's a review from last time that we met, but 1 Peter 3, 3, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes, but let it be one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible, the hidden person of the heart. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the eyes of God. This is a lady. This is a true lady. This is the lady of the Lord. There's one more perspective, one more perspective, one more angle of this portrait that we can paint for young women that we need to examine. And it's, for some, maybe the most difficult the most difficult because it flies in the face of our culture and the culture of Crete and everything. And that is, not only should young women in the church be taught by older women to be learners and lovers and ladies, but also they must be awakened to become laborers. Laborers. Learners, lovers, ladies, and lastly, laborers. And we see that in Titus 2, verse 5. To be sensible pure, here it is, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, these terms, workers at home, kind, and subject to their own husbands are to be taken together, for this is how she must operate her family. She is to be the queen of the home. She is to be the queen of her husband, living with an attitude of kindness. Truth be known, Verse 4, speaking of loving her husband, now balances verse 5 by submitting to him. She loves him by submitting to him and acting all the while in this demeanor. This is a beautiful home. This is what makes a home beautiful is the queen who reigns in this home. And now the modern woman, uh, maybe even some of you, Say, okay, that's, that's all I can take. I was, I was with you for most of it, but now I'm done. I'm gone. You know, if you just pray now, and when you open your eyes, I'm out of here. Um, and I can understand that because people are so infused with so many ungodly perspectives. But the important thing is that we understand um, that this teaching, as patiently as you've listened to it, and, and even though I know you've been holding yourself maybe all about all this business about love and, and modesty, but someone might say, to insist, Tom, 
that, I, that a woman is to be a worker at home and submitting to their husband all the while with sweet demeanor, you've, you've gone too far. But that's what the Bible says. So let's explain what it means. The whole idea of this biblical woman, to some is illogical, demoralizing, unintelligible. I won't have it. Enough is enough. But when you do that, you might remind you that you are, by the word of God, resisting God. When you think that way, you're resisting God. You say this Paul was an anti-feminist and he only tries to advance his own agenda. No, not so, because long before he came to chapter 2, talking about women, he states in chapter 1 that this is the proclamation which he was entrusted with according to the commandment of God. This was the commandment of God entrusted to Paul to speak not only to, to women, but to people in the church, to the men in the church, to Titus who was planting the church, This is why he's written, because the Cretan churches would undoubtedly say the same thing. They would say to him, if you're following me, by what authority, Paul, do you have to say these things? And Titus, the answer, by the apostolic authority of Paul given to him by God himself, if you do not like the teaching of the wife working at home and submitting to her husband, and we're going to define that, then your reaction tells you that you're resisting God, not man. He says the same thing to Timothy in chapter 5, 1 Timothy, where he says to the younger widows, get married, bear children, keep house. So this is the clear teaching in the New Testament, that the home is to be the central sphere of the influence of the young woman, younger married woman. Now, that being said, what does it mean? What does that mean? Well, let me begin by telling you what it doesn't mean. Okay, that's always a good model. It doesn't mean that the godly wife and mother is never to leave the house. That would be foolish. That would be not practical. No, no, of course, this woman is not to be confined to a house arrest or some kind of thing like other people might assume, but rather her home is her headquarters. That's how I want you to think of it. Her home is her headquarters. Her home is central to all that she does. She's a home worker. This is a compound word in the Greek, literally just that, home worker. That's what it means home worker. So let me tell you also what this term doesn't mean. That the Christian wife or mother can only change diapers and knit all day long and uh, only do child care and house cleaning, because that doesn't mean that either. How do I know that? Because everybody's going, please let that be true. Uh, (laughs) Because scripture elsewhere paints the young women's portrait as one who is entrepreneurial, who has enterprises within her, who is an exceptional person. Go with me to Proverbs 31. If you were here with us not too long ago, I went through a long teaching, three lessons on Proverbs 31. Uh, If you didn't get it, you can get it online. I would really encourage you to get it because I think that it's a greatly misunderstood text of Scripture, uh, what the true Proverbs 31 woman is to be like. But that being said, if you go to the very last chapter of, of the book of Proverbs, you will see that this woman is described as a woman of excellence, a woman of worth, a woman who has good and does good all the days of her life. And so suffice it to say, what I want you to glean from this, it says here that she has a piece of motherly advice. This is a piece of motherly advice given to her from a queen to her son, the prince, as to what kind of wife he should look for. 
And remember, this is the, how a royal marriage should look like. This is the true kind of woman a prince should look for, and that would be no financial hardships, because she's going to be a queen. She's a princess. She's going to be a princess. There's going to be a household of servants uh, and courtiers. There's going to be uh, no one would expect this woman that she's about to describe to do anything, to lift a finger. She's wealthy. She's aristocratic. Uh, it's a distant kind of marriage. Uh, she, has a, she has a different kind of marriage. But instead, what we read here, instead of her being uh, taken care of and pampered and sitting uh, upon her throne asking for little truffles. We don't see that at all. What we see instead is this very, very busy woman, this very attentive woman to make her home a place of excellence. She doesn't have to, uh, but she does. This princess doesn't stay uh, perched on her throne, but instead in verse 13 of chapter 31, she is an entrepreneur. Let me read for you verse 13 through 25. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it's still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. This is a worker at home. This is a worker at home. This is a successful, most wonderful worker at home. She doesn't work because she has to work. Her husband is wealthy, sitting at the gates, ruling and making decisions. No, she loves to work. She loves to work and use her skills to increase the benefit for her family. She's not confined to a structure, a house, a home, a building, but she is out and about with ingenuity, finding ways to make profit. And she's, again, entrepreneurial in this idea. She does not work from, for a man. She works from home. She works from home. She doesn't work because she has to. She works because she wants to. She doesn't merely wash clothes and make meals and find ways to use gifts that God has given her to grant her uh, anything but further bounty for her household. She's not reduced to a worker at home. She's empowered to be a worker at home. She's God's marvelous plan for her family. And all that she is is not dispensed abroad, investing in other people's families. She invests in her own family. The younger women in the church are not to be held back by some kind of antiquated chauvinistic kind of enslavement. I don't know why I can't talk. Uh, <laughs> never, that shouldn't be the case. The godly woman is taught. She's awakened from her cultural slumber. She rejects the new woman who longs for prominence and identity and lifestyle outside the home. She finds true prominence, true, true identity, true worth in being a loving helpmate to her husband. 
she must not be kept away from this calling, even by her husband. If more income is needed, he doesn't send her to work with children in the home. No, if, she needs, if there's more income, he needs to work more. He needs to want to work more. He finds the extra means to keep the family alive. She must never be forced to work outside the sphere of the home. She wants to. She has no children. That's a different idea. But she must never be either allowed to stray from this calling. She must be taught to love her home, her work, to reject the world that tells her that she's wasting her talents away as she cares for her own children instead of caring for the children of a superstar that's traveling around the world. She's found in her home and wonderful ways that she's learned to benefit her home. Her fullest expression is the fullness of her giftedness in God. If she's single, let her aspire toward her heart's desire. If she's single, let her be a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, a teacher. But once she's married with children, uh, let her hold on to those things very loosely for her new calling is her home. Her focus is no longer vocational. Her focus is mothering those who God has granted her. And in kindness, in kindness, and we'll end with this, she submits to her husband in love for that's God's plan for her life. So what kind of man should she submit to? You might be wondering. We're going to find out about that next time. We're in 1 Peter. And it's a man who loves and understands her who loves and understands her. But until then, just remember, this portrait of the younger woman in the church is not some incidental painting hanging in a museum somewhere. This is a portrait for us today, painted in the blood by the Savior who died and rose again, that he might purify for himself a woman for his own possession. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this parentheses in our teaching where we might come here while many of our men are away and learning about what it is to be a man, that we might have just a short time to think about what it is to be a godly woman in the church. Thank you for the older women who are here that are so useful and so ready to use their giftedness in the lives of younger women. We pray that you open those doors for them to use their giftedness. And we pray for the younger women here too, Lord, that even are not married yet to prepare them for this challenge and for this great responsibility in your church. Help those that have children also, Lord, that they might be able to see these words and to be refreshed and challenged and to be awakened, to have encouragement given to them by these older saints so that they might love their children, love their husbands, and be sensible learners and ladies and laborers in the home. Bless this teaching, I pray. In Christ, we we ask for this blessing. Amen.